In the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, what we see is the shocking failure of human leaders. In 1 Samuel, we see the dramatic failure of King Saul. Even though he had enormous potential, considerable abilities, and even substantial accomplishments, in the end, he turned out to be a complete disaster for God's people. Why was this the case? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 15 tells us that his failure came because he failed to listen to the words of the Lord. And what we see play out is a good lesson that power in the hands of such a man can only bring about the destruction of his kingdom. Though the sad story of Saul is important because as we've seen over the last few weeks, it forms the backdrop for the story of the new king, King David, a king who promised to be different. But what made him so different? Well, firstly, as we were told a few weeks ago in 1 Samuel 13, David was chosen by God. A quite different to Saul, who the people had chosen, in David we see that God had searched for a man after his own heart to rule the kingdom. So David was different on that level. Secondly, because of this God-ordained choosing, we are reminded regularly in the story that the Lord was with David. And with the Lord, 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 10 tells us that David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Thirdly, David was different because of his desire to not do what Saul had failed to do. Because he was a man who, as we might say, walked with the Lord. He trusted God and trusted that God would guide him and his kingdom in goodness and kindness. That's who David was. And this was not a blind trust. Because God had been there for David in very real and practical ways all throughout his life. And I can't help but think that 1 Samuel 17 verse 37 was a kind of motto in David's life. This is what he says. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. This was just before the encounter with Goliath. But what it shows us is that God had been faithful to David in real and practical ways through his life. And this formed the basis for David's real and practical trust in God. And because of this, so far in the story, we've seen that in many ways David proved to be better than Saul. But even though David was a good king, for this great man, what do you think would happen when he was tricked into thinking that he didn't need God anymore? What do you think would happen when he started ignoring that God was there and that his opinion about things mattered more than anything else? Well, over recent weeks, we've seen a little bit of what happened. Because as we've worked through 2 Samuel chapter 11, the events that it records for us 
has demonstrated once for all that David in the end was no better than Saul. As we've seen that power in the hands of David, just like Saul in the end, became an instrument for the indulgent and self-serving abuse of others. To get you up to speed on where we've been in the story, we've seen that he fancied the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He took her and slept with her. And when he learnt that she was pregnant last week, we saw him embark on a cover-up. We also saw last week that his two attempts at covering up what he had done had failed. And what we've seen so far is the danger that comes when you ignore that God is there and that he matters. We've seen that play out in David's life and we see that play out in the most extreme way in our passage this morning. But turning to us, as we begin today, I wonder if you've ever thought about what you could be capable of if you ignored God too. Because this story in the Bible is not here so that we can go and dig up all, all the dirt on David. Now, God has given this story to us as a warning to not do the same thing. And so the question stands, if you were to ignore God, what would you be capable of? What sinful behavior could you ignore in your own life? What kind of evil could you be capable of if you suppressed your understanding that God is there and that his opinion of us matters more than anything else? Maybe you're sitting here realizing for the first time that you've done exactly that and that there is a significant area of sin in your life that you've just gone on with without giving any thought to what God is thinking about it or any thought to what you should do about it. It seems clear to me through my experience of ministering to men that especially for men, the suppression of the knowledge of God can lead to all kinds of sexual misbehavior which actually is not all that dissimilar with David, is it? And what he did with Bathsheba. Even though he lived 3,000 years ago, in the end, we're all pretty similar to David, aren't we? Not much has changed. And so the question stands, if you ignored God, what would you be capable of? Well, unfortunately for David, so far, he had been unsuccessful in his attempt to cover up his sin. Last week we saw that if Uriah had only been a little bit more cooperative, then his life in the end would have been much easier. Uriah, who could have been the solution for David, had now become his problem. And with David's situation becoming more desperate, his behavior needed to become more decisive, which is where we turn today as we see David's plan C. As you pick up our story today, and it'd be good to have the passage open in front of you. As the third day of Uriah's visit to Jerusalem dawned, it was time for him to return to the battle that was happening 60 kilometers away at Rabbah. As the sun rose on that day, it also becomes evident very quickly that King David had come up with a plan. It was a daring plan, but if it worked, then all of David's problems would go away. We pick the story up in verse 14, where we read, 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. A letter from the king to his trusted commander would have been completely normal in this circumstance. Even if Uriah knew something about David's problem, he probably would have assumed that the letter contained a royal encouragement or even fresh orders for the battle that we heard about at the beginning of the chapter. But as Uriah leaves the city, with the king's letter in hand, on his way back to the battle, his commander and his fellow troops, he leaves with the letter. And as he leaves, the narrator lets us in on a little secret in verse 15. We read that in it he wrote, in the letter that he sent with Uriah, David wrote, Put Uriah out in front, where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him, so that he will be struck down and die. Friends, we're meant to be horrified. Even with David's evil actions last week, this is intended to shock us. But with this, I hope that you can also see where the path of unrepentant sin can lead. Because here we see that the lustful glance from his rooftop just a few weeks earlier had now turned in to an intent to murder. One step after another, we have seen David not trust God. And in doing so, we have seen him descend further and further into more sin. During better days, David had actually refused to shed the blood of others to defend himself. He'd also, with the men who killed Saul, condemned in the strongest possible terms anyone who tried to do the same thing on his behalf. Though here we see him initiating the deliberate murder of an innocent man to protect himself. How far the mighty have fallen. The objective was clear. If Uriah had come to know anything of David's adultery, then the accusation would be silenced by his death, wouldn't it? And if Uriah was ignorant of David's crime, then it would ensure that he never found out about it. Either way, because of how the society was made up at that time, Bathsheba's pregnancy could be easily ascribed to Uriah, and no one would be able to contradict that manufactured version of events. Though what strikes me here is the insight that this little episode gives us into how David actually felt about Bathsheba. Because here I think that as far as David was concerned, she was just some beautiful woman who he could take. At no point in the story are we told about David's worry about her finding out about his cover-up and now intended murder. And at no point is David worried that the correct version of events might become public through her speaking up about it. Which does make me wonder whether their sexual encounter had ended with a threat from the powerful king not to speak about it, lest she be destroyed by public shaming, or possibly even worse. Friends, this is evil, isn't it? This is an awful thing to read. This is an awful thing for David to have done. Though in the story, we're not allowed to dwell too much on this because we're quickly thrown back to Uriah, back on the front line to the conflict with the Ammonites. 
where we see that when Uriah reported to his commander with the letter in hand, Joab was very quick in implementing the wishes of the letter. But characteristically, he made some improvements on what David had planned. So what did he do? Well, let's look at verse 16. We read that, So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. Joab, as we will continue to see as we keep looking at this book, Joab was a cunning tactician. And in this instance, he knew where the city was defended the most. He knew where the best enemy soldiers were, and that is where he placed Uriah. It would also seem like the army of Israel did something to provoke the army of the Ammonites because we're told this in verse 17. The men of the city came out and fought against Joab. You see, the writer is painting a picture for us that the best Ammonite soldiers at a point in the battle poured out of the city to fight the soldiers of Israel who were under Joab's leadership where they were deliberately exposed and ill-equipped to fight back. And what was the result? Well, we keep reading in verse 17. Some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab was a loyal servant of the king. And in this improved plan, do you see what he did? Well, he removed the question, why Uriah, didn't he? Questions might be asked about his tactical judgment, but in this calculated plan, Uriah ended up just being another number killed on the day. Though of that number, it's good for us to remember that all the men that day were servants of David, weren't they? Which means that in order to protect the king from the public consequences of his sin, a number of them were sacrificed. The innocent glance from the rooftop at the beautiful woman now leading to the deaths of many innocent men. But for David, what we see is that finally, plan C was it success. And Joab sends back a report for how the battle have gone, which would be odd for a messenger, because a commander like Joab would never want the news of such a defeat relayed back to the king. But as we've seen, hardly anything in this story is normal, is it? So next we read about the report that was sent back to the king, and we read from verse 18. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobethesh? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And then we see the messenger arrive at Jerusalem and deliver the report. Though notice how he constructs the report as he anticipates the king's possible anger. And he changes it up a bit from verse 22. The messenger set out 
And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Here we see exactly what happened in the battle of a few verses before. Though the only bit of information that David would have been concerned with was whether the cover-up had been a success, which the messenger addresses in the final part of his report. He doesn't even wait for David to get angry. He just blurts it out and he says, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. With the anticipated anger of the king a possibility, I wonder how the messenger would have felt while he waited for the king's response. Put yourself in his shoes. Would David explode with rage? Would he be overcome at the senseless loss of life? Would the messenger need to carry back a strong message of rebuke to the angry and ruthless commander, Joab? Well, as you're in his shoes, imagine the relief when David opened his mouth to say these words from verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. A literal translation of what David says is this. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes, Joab. What? What on earth is going on here? Well, friends, do you see what's happened? David's deceitful heart had now blinded him to the evil that he had done. And David's message was essentially this. Uriah has been murdered. Many other of my servants have been sacrificed. But so don't see this thing as evil, Joab, because your king does not see it as evil. Which are words which the prophet Isaiah will condemn later when he says this. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Friends, it's evil, isn't it? And with astounding cynicism, David pretended that what happened was simply the unfortunate unpredictability of war. And David's instruction to Joab was to overthrow the city. Far from a rebuke, he instructs the messenger to encourage Joab about the whole thing. And the messenger left to deliver that encouragement. And I can imagine that David might have sat back at this point in the story and relaxed. After all, it had worked, hadn't it? Plan C had worked. His difficulties were over. The sinful liaison with the beautiful woman covered up in the end in a confused military campaign, which resulted in the death of Uriah the Hittite. It was time to move on. And this is exactly what the narrative does as it describes the aftermath of the cover-up. 
Firstly, we hear of Bathsheba, who has been hidden by the narrator since the beginning of the chapter, but now she comes back into the story in verse 26. We're told that when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. You see, unlike David, Bathsheba grieved over Uriah, her husband, and that is all we're told. Though note that that the narrator insists on calling her the wife of Uriah, doesn't he? And calling Uriah her husband. Friends, David might have ignored these facts, but the writer of 2 Samuel will not allow us to forget them and what had taken place. Secondly, we hear about what David did in the first half of verse 27, where we read that, And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. You see what happened? Once again, for the final time, David sent for Bathsheba. For one final time, David took Bathsheba. And we're supposed to imagine, I think, David thinking, well, all's well that ends well. As far as the beginning of verse 27 is concerned, it had ended well for David, hadn't it? David got the girl. He could claim that the boy was his own. The problem of Uriah was out of the picture. And surely that was the end of the matter. Except for one thing because there was something that David had overlooked. I heard a story recently of a young man who took his new car on the freeway for the first time near where Kirsty and I grew up around Hornsby. He was sitting on the on-ramp to the freeway in neutral. His new car was a manual, so he engaged the clutch and put the gearbox into first and then began to slowly move away down the road. Quickly, he moved into second then third, and then fourth. Gaining pace and getting up to the speed limit, he signalled to the right and merged into the left-hand lane. As he approached 100 kilometres an hour, he engaged the clutch and moved the gear stick into fifth. He depressed the clutch, pressed the accelerator, and sped up to the speed limit, 110 kilometres an hour. This was his new car. The windows were down, the air rushing through his hair as he travelled down the freeway. Not a care in the world. Other cars were around him, though the situation wasn't dangerous. Everyone was being sensible. At this part of the freeway, just north of Sydney, uh, has a steep uphill section, and as he approached the uphill section, the speed limit also drops to 90 kilometers an hour, which meant changing down a gear to maintain the speed up the hill. So he pressed on the clutch again, moved the gear stick into position, and pulled back on the clutch. But the problem was that as he started to go up the hill, as he changed gears, he missed fourth, and he found reverse. To say that it was a shock would be an understatement. The car was a complete disaster. The engine completely destroyed the gearbox completely destroyed. To say it was a shock would be a complete understatement. 
And in a very similar way to that young man, the final words of chapter 11 serve as a reverse gear on the whole story of David and Bathsheba. Because in this whole story, as David relaxed at the plan of at the success of plan C, there was something he had overlooked. Unusually in the life of David, everything that had happened after the evening with Bathsheba had occurred without any reference to God at all. However, as always, the Lord was watching. And the account of what happened with David and Bathsheba concludes with this devastating closing statement in the second half of verse 27, where we read that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, and in contrast to David's words to Joab, do not let this thing be evil in your eyes, the account ends by telling us that the thing that David has done was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Even though David's attempt at a cover-up seemed like it had been successful, here, in this crushing conclusion, we see that ultimately it was ridiculous. Because regardless of what he thought, God's opinion did actually matter. And regardless of whether David recognized that he was there, God saw everything that he had done. And as far as God was concerned, what David did was evil in his eyes. Friends, the words of Psalm 139 that was read out to us before are, in, are true, aren't they? You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. God sees everything. And the lesson is that even though we may deceive ourselves into thinking that our evil thoughts and actions have no consequences, ultimately evil behavior cannot be hidden from God. Though what consequences will flow for David out of this evil? Well, from God's law, as far as David's sin is concerned, we can expect that next week, as we get to chapter 12, that he will be put to death. You can turn the page to find out, but we'll get there next week. But before we come to chapter 12 next week, let's take a moment to reflect on what we've seen in this story over the past three weeks. Because just as I said at the beginning, David was one of the greatest men to have ever lived. Yet what we've seen is that no matter how upright a person seems to be, there is always an inherent rottenness that can always come out which applies to you and me as well as David. Friends, would you dare say in your heart that you would never act like David? Do you think in your heart that you are inherently good and not possibly violent and selfish like David? If the answer is yes, then this story is a wake-up call. 
Because if you're perfect, why did Jesus need to come and die for you? Friends, the reality is that we're all sinful and in need of God's grace. And our hearts have a far higher capacity for evil than we are normally willing to admit. And so the question comes back to us. If you ignored God, what would you be capable of? Friends, we're sinful beings. But the good news is that God is always willing to forgive us when we ask. Which means that we need to dispense with all our foolish attempts at cover-ups, even if it is just to cover up our own guilt from our sin. Friends, God is always willing to forgive us when we ask. So this is a reminder to not cover up, but come to him and ask for forgiveness. Come to his son and trust that his death on the cross was for you. But from this story, what are we to make of God's promise that we looked at in week one to this man, David, the promise that God made to establish a kingdom forever out of his family? It looks like it's in jeopardy, doesn't it? Well, in due course, God would keep assuring his people that he would keep his promises. And what we see in the gospel of Jesus is God doing exactly that where we see what we're going to see in coming weeks, that in the end, God's grace is even more spectacular than the sin of David and of you and of me. And that grace is shown in amazing ways through the history, because for reasons that you'll have to keep reading to find out, the beginning of Matthew contains some pretty interesting names, because it makes it unambiguous that because of God's grace, Jesus' ancestry includes a prostitute from Jericho called Rahab. It includes a Moabite woman called Ruth. And it even includes the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Friends, this little summary of Jesus' genealogy gives us hope that God is going to do something amazing out of this story. And we're going to come back to it as we keep working through this in the weeks to come. Friends, to those who humble themselves before him, God is always merciful. And even though we haven't heard much from him in this story, God is still control. God is still in control of David's life and the world. And next week, we're going to see a very powerful demonstration of his spectacular grace. So I'd invite you to come back for that. Amen.